Our guest today is Raf D'Andrea. Raf is a Canadian, Italian, Swiss engineer, artist, and entrepreneur. He got his undergraduate degree from Toronto, PhD from Caltech, was then professor at Cornell, and is currently professor of Dynamic Systems and Control at ETH Zurich. He is a co-founder of Kiva Systems, which pioneered mobile robots transporting goods in warehouses by transporting entire shells. Kiva Systems was acquired by Amazon in 2012, and to date, many Amazon warehouses are operating this way. Raf is also co-founder of Verity, building some of the world's most capable drones, first for art and now for doing warehouse inventory. With his students, Raf won the World Cup F-180 League four times in six years. Raf was elected a member of the National Academy of Engineering in 2020 and was a speaker at the world-famous TED conference in 2016. Raf, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. Now, Raf, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO, with offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including artificial intelligence, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They are used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of weights and biases. Now, Raf, let's start with your current startup, Verity. What does Verity do? We are operating in 13 countries. We create autonomous drone systems that collect information in warehouses at any place at any time, fully autonomous without any human intervention. And they're there to give our clients more insights. So how do you imagine this? I walk into a warehouse where the Verity drones are. What, what do I see? What's happening? Yeah. So they tend to operate when there's no one around at night. Uh, so what they do is after everyone has left, the drones take off from their chargers and they fly in the warehouse. Uh, the largest warehouse that we're in is six, 700,000 square feet. So some very large warehouses. They can fly in complete darkness. And what they do is they basically do inventory tracking. They go and fly everywhere where there is likely to be an error. The system determines where the likelihood of errors are, goes and checks what is there and, and syncs up with the client's database that holds the information of what, where things are supposed to be and basically corrects errors in the, in, in the digital twin that represents what's in the warehouse. So there's a digital twin that's supposed to match perfectly with what's in the warehouse, but every day something, I don't know, what's the frequency? Every day something gets misplaced and the drones go find out what happened? Yeah. So for example, one of our clients is Ikea and we operate in the many of their European warehouses, their stores where they also have pallets that hold goods. And what happens is over a typical day, you might get five or 10% movement of these goods. 
And every time you move something, there's a probability that an error will occur. So we go and fly at night and we go and find where the errors are. And we also do routine checks on weekends for things that have not been checked for a long time. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely remember in the past, uh, I would go to Ikea, actually, exactly the example you're giving. And I want to get something and I go to the warehouse area where they have everything shelved up. And supposedly there is one more, but actually it's not on the shelf. And now I'm looking at neighboring shelves and seeing if maybe, you know, somebody misplaced it, but sometimes can't find it. And you're saying with your drones, that's a thing of the past that would have been flagged and would have been moved back into the right spot. Yeah. So, I mean, we bring value to like a client like Ikea in, in kind of two different buckets. The first is right now people go and do this check. And it's very inefficient. It's very dangerous because people have to go at height. Some of these warehouses are, you know, 60 feet high. Some of these new warehouses are ridiculously high. People go at great heights. So you, you, instead of having people do it, you have an autonomous systems do it. It's just much safer, more efficient. But what's interesting about our system is that the marginal cost of checking is actually very small. So our clients check much more frequently than they used to. And that allows them to drive their errors down to zero. And when you have zero errors, it means that you don't have write-offs. You don't have lost sales when folks go to the store and the thing is not there. When you don't have something there, it's also very expensive to the company because, for example, in Ikea's case, then they have to take a report down and then they have to deliver the goods to you at, on their own dime. So that all saves uh, these associated costs as well. That's really interesting. Now, I got to wonder when you... When you start thinking about this, was it immediately obvious to you that drones is the right thing to do? Because when I think about it, it seems like one alternative would be to install a lot of cameras because cameras are relatively cheap. And so maybe install a camera for every area, install another camera and just take the data from those cameras. Yeah. So first you have to understand some of these warehouses are huge, right? As I mentioned, six, 700,000 square feet. This year we're going to be installing in a, in a warehouse that's over a million square feet. If you're going to have a lot of, you know, and also cameras can't be arbitrarily far away from the things you're looking at. We have a high imaging sensor on our drones and we have to get to within about a meter of the racks to be able to extract proper information from it. So you can get a sense of how many cameras you would need if you really want to get that sort of resolution is it would just be prohibitively expensive and maybe also a lot of work at installation time to to get everything installed harder to maintain the cameras themselves but it's also the installation and the wiring that is uh significant and with a system like ours the, the right way to abstract it you know if you want to think about it is it's when you want to collect information not continuously but on demand right? Event-based information gathering. And then it makes perfect sense to use a platform like ours. If you're constantly reading data, then, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a drone with a camera continuously collecting that data. Not right now. It may in the future, but it doesn't make sense to do that right now. Now, you've worked on drones for quite a while at this point. And as I understand it, initially Verity was not focused on the warehouse use case, was focused on art installations. Can you say a bit more about that? And how did that come about? And how did you make that decide to make that switch? Yeah, it's interesting. Everyone perceives it that way. But actually, operating in warehouses was one of the one of the key things that was on our roadmap. We actually did a demonstrator in 2016, right, um, pretty much after we came out of stealth mode in a Walmart warehouse where we're using our drones to do inventory, right? So we were actually building on that use case. 
The reality was that the technology stack that we had developed was not ready to be deployed in warehouses, and but it was ready to be deployed in live events, um, simply because the even though the environment is such that you know failure is not an option, you still could put drones in the space by hand. They could fly autonomously, and then you could collect the drones. They didn't have to operate continuously like they do right now in our warehouses. So we were able to monetize our capabilities in live events, working you know with Cirque du Soleil. We we were on tour with Drake, Celine Dion, Justin Bieber, Metallica. Uh, we're on. 10 cruise ships right now operating globally that use our drones as, as part of their shows. So we we were able to monetize quite a bit of our capabilities in live events while we were developing kind of this warehousing solution pretty much from the get-go. And we we launched our system in 2021. So a lot of R&D had to happen before it was also warehouse ready. Can you maybe say a bit more about what were some of the gaps if you're able to share between having a drone that can do a show with Justin Bieber, Drake, and and so forth, which is very high billing right there. Must be a high bar to meet already. Yet there is still that gap to be this warehouse monitoring system. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's many differences. Uh, I mean, what do they have in common is the ability to fly autonomously indoors where there is no GPS. So that, that is a lot of the core... IP there is being able to, you know, to navigate indoors without without GPS. I mean, with live events, they were the requirements were very different. For most of these concerts and tours that I was telling you about, they're basically moving lights. It's a light show. And so the drones just have to carry a bright light, a bright LED. So extremely light payload. The flight times only about three minutes. And n- there was no need to do autonomous takeoff and landing, uh, charging, right? Because it's a one-time event that 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 occurs and the requirement for accuracy was very 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 light you know because these things have to hold a shape but they don't have to fly within a couple of centimeters of 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 where they're supposed to be it was very tolerant for error so it was a it, it was kind of a forgiving from a technological perspective application whereas you know for operating in the warehouse you know they have to operate all the time they're flying all the time so extreme levels of reliability heavier drones because they're carrying a heavier payload, higher quality optics, and just a much more um, demanding environment to operate continuously. Now, you robustify the system and you say operating continuously. Does that mean that right now from your team for the warehouses where you're deployed, there's nobody there? It's just the drones are there and that's it. That's right. I mean, in order for the business case to... uh, to be possible, um, you cannot have human intervention. So basically, the systems once we deploy them and commission them, we bring our folks back home, and and that's it. It has to work. One of the advantages of the business case is that if there is something, you know, if one of the drones doesn't operate quite the way we want it to, first we have quite a bit of advanced analytics that do pre-checks. So basically, the best time to spot a problem is before the drone takes off. So uh, we can do that. And then, you know, a warehouse worker just has to go and pick up the drone, put it in a box and mail it to us and we mail them a new one. So we can do that preemptively. But that doesn't happen that often because drones mechanically are really simple. It's just four moving parts, very simple mechanical design, still very clever design to minimize vibrations and, and so forth. But most of the IP is, is really in the software that's in the drones. And one of the things you mentioned that's really core to the capabilities is the ability to navigate indoors without GPS. Can you say a bit more about that? 
Sure. Our first generation indoor system, we used a ultra wideband based localization system. Basically, we developed kind of the world's first GPS-like ultra wideband system. What that meant is that we could put kind of ultra wideband access points randomly in the space. And by them communicating with each other and synchronizing their clocks, things by just listening to that traffic could figure out where they were in space. So similar architecture to GPS where just by listening, you can figure out where you are in space. That's a great system. In this, You don't need line of sight and it scales well. You can have an arbitrary number of units. The downside of it is that you do have to install infrastructure. You have to install these access points that even though are relatively straightforward and, and, and not that expensive, it's still infrastructure that you have to install. So for if you're going to do something like a million square foot warehouse, you kind of don't want to install infrastructure like that. Whereas for doing a cruise ship or, you know, a concert, it's perfectly fine, you know, to have to have 10, 20 of these access points installed. The system that we have now is a, is a different type of localization system, which is called, um, I'm sure most of the listeners would know, it's an inside-out localization where all of the active components are inside the drone. And by having various sensors on the drone, we can figure out where we are in space. So with the sensing on the drone, what I'm imagining is that some kind of SLAM algorithm has to run to understand the 3D of, of the environment the drone is in. Is that right? Yeah, there's a there's um, we obviously have to have a map of the facility and we refine this map as we fly. There is a commissioning phase of the system where we have folks on the ground for a few days that make sure that the drones can properly localize in space. But then after that point, they're really on their own. They're really autonomous. Very interesting. That That's amazing. Now, I mean, the first part is also amazing to me that you effectively build an indoor GPS of your own to localize. But of course, then given the fact that you need to avoid shelves and understand where everything is, you might as well localize against all, all the geometry that's in the environment because you need to know about it anyway. Exactly. What if something moves? What if somebody says, I'm going to reorganize my warehouse and move these shelves to somewhere else, what happens? So right now, what happens is that they have to let us know. Of course, we can do all of this remotely, and we can then fly in those parts and remap. And But there's still some human touch that happens from our side. Most of it is automated, but there's still human beings that you know take this information and make sure that the proper map has been, has been created. Fortunately, it can be done all remotely. It doesn't have to be on site. Obviously, where we're trying to move to is that all of this is fully automated. It's one of the things about you know autonomous systems is that you want uh, a lot of times, if you try to do something 100%, it's extremely difficult. But to do it 95% is much, much easier uh, than doing it at 100%. So if you can have the people doing it remotely, then that 5% is actually not a bad thing because it's just you know 20 minutes, 30 minutes of their time Think of all the man hours that it would take to automate this task. Some people, you know, people are good at doing certain things that autonomous things are not. But obviously, we eventually want to remove all of that human intervention. And I'm, I, I suspect you'll succeed. I have no doubt, Ashley Raff, with everything you've already done, and we'll talk more about many other things you've done soon enough in this conversation. But w one angle that I'm also curious about with the drones flying around the warehouse is. When they fly around and they see or not see something, I guess it, it's vision. You're saying it's all autonomous, so it's just some visual processing happening. What is it doing? Is it just a barcode scanner? Which, I mean, of course, is also hard to always get right. 
or is there also more going on than barcode scanning? Yeah, in terms of the insights that they obtain right now, what they do is they look at palette locations, they extract images that uh, we have 3D depth sensors, so we d we do volumetric estimation as well. But from a purely visual perspective, that's exactly what we do. We we go and read barcodes, and we you know we isolate where in the picture there's a barcode, and then there's uh, third party um, uh, software that you can use to actually decode a barcode once you know once you have it. Obviously, that's the case. You know, handheld barcode scanners have been around, you know, for ages. So, so that is the main way in which we give insights to our clients right now. It's kind of the low-hanging fruit of this use case. The volumetric aspect also intrigues me because if you have a ton of stuff on the shelf, you can't see everything. And so it sounds like you can get an estimate of how many items there are, even though you cannot see every item's barcode. Yeah, that is, a, that is another big pull from our clients that they, you know, they said it's great that you can fly at heights and, and tell us what these pallets are, but there's also the picking locations where, you know, folks are actively taking things in and out or loose boxes and then being able to do counts of how many items are there is, is uh, very beneficial. And of course, you don't have to use 3D depth to do it. You could do it purely on with vision data, especially when you take into account that you know, we can move, the, the drones can move around and take images from different angles. And of course, they know exactly where they are in space. So that information coupled together gives you a lot of information. Uh, fusing that with 3D depth just makes it, you know, uh, it gives you that much more resolution. This is Verity we just talked about. And I want to go even further back on Verity, actually, which is how do you decide to start the company? Because I think a lot of people have ideas and are on the fence. Should I start a company? Should I not start a company? Is this the right thing to do? It's the right time. Uh, what were your thoughts in starting Verity? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, I've, I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial. I think, you know, when I think back at my time at Cornell University and when I was on sabbatical at MIT, you know, I started Kiva Systems. Well, we'll talk a little bit about Kiva later, I'm sure. But, you know, for me, it's, it's after I do something for a certain amount of time, you know, uh, whether it was mobile robots that led to Kiva, and then it was, you know, doing drone research at ETH for, you know, five, six years. And I really felt that, you know, I wanted to commercialize those capabilities. When I wear my academic hat, I like to do pure unconstrained research that does not care at all about applications. It's not because I don't like applications. It's just that I like to be, you know, free when I do research, but I really like solving specific problems as well. And that's the entrepreneurial side. So I felt that when I was on sabbatical in 2014, that I wanted to start a company, uh, a couple of my coworkers uh, that I really respected and super bright guys were also interested. So we started the company back then. When you start the company, as you said, you had the art installations that you knew you could do. You had the warehousing already in mind. When now you look further ahead and you have the warehousing, is there more opportunities within warehousing that you're not covering yet? Are there opportunities outside of warehousing that you're looking to expand into? Yeah, I mean, I think for the short to medium term, certainly we're focused on warehousing. It's a huge, huge market. You know, there's uh, something like 150, 200,000 warehouses in the world today. We are focused on the use case of inventory, uh, collecting data of inventory, but this ability to collect information anywhere at any time, you know, that goes beyond inventory. You can use it for inspection. You can use it for environmental monitoring. You can put an RFID scanner on a drone if you have devices that have RFID tags. And your ability to fly relatively close to the items means that um, 
you know, you can get away with smaller tags and s- small RFID readers. So you can kind of open up new new capabilities that are not possible today. I think collecting data on demand makes a lot of sense. And the ability to collect data usually requires small sensors and drones excel where you have high value to weight ratios. And, you know, what's more valuable than data? So I think uh, I think this use case of collecting data on demand is huge. We really focus on indoors. The outdoor problem is different. It's easier in some ways because you have GPS. It's harder in others because you have the elements. Drones have to be kind of a minimum size if you're going to fly outdoors. But there's really no limit to how small we can make these drones flying indoors. I mean, they could be, you know, fit in the palm of your hand. Yeah, that, that's a very exciting, very exciting future, Robin. You know, I've seen drones, indeed, that fit in the palm of my hand. And initially, you're surprised. At some point, you're just like, okay, that that's apparently possible. Right. And battery power is only getting better and better over time. So it's an amazing time ahead there. Yeah, and I think we're leveraging all of these kind of technological innovations you mentioned, batteries, compute power, special compute platforms that really are tailored to rob- robotic applications just the way they're architected. Motors are also getting better, although their rate of improvement is certainly less than, you know, than battery. Better algorithms uh, are also being developed, better sensors. Uh, so kind of everything is going in that right direction for really small platforms. Now, going to your previous startup, Kiva Systems. Kiva Systems is still today, I'd say, one of the biggest, possibly the biggest robotic startup success story my mind, many people's minds, acquired by Amazon for close to a billion dollars. But not only that, many acquisitions happen possibly for high amounts and then nothing comes of it anymore because it doesn't integrate with the acquirer. But Amazon has deployed over half a million of these Kiva robots. I mean, and counting, who knows? That's the latest stat I could find. So yeah. it's, it's a success story both in terms of adoption and in terms of also the valuation of the company at the time. How did Kiva, well, maybe first give a quick explanation. What what does Kiva, what did Kiva Systems do? What does it do now in Amazon warehouses, the, the technology that's used there? And then how did you get started? Yeah. I mean, what Kiva does, it's a, a robotic mobile fulfillment system. So if you look at a distribution facility, think of an Amazon warehouse, the way that they used to fill orders. Uh, so you would have people walking around these huge warehouses and and put orders in a box and then pack them and, and ship them off. But there'd be a lot of walking that took place to go and get the goods and and pack them to uh, you know to ship to to a consumer that order them. We created a system where instead of people walking around, we'd have hundreds and now thousands of these mobile robots in one single warehouse that would move around, go and pick up a pod that was carrying the goods. And they would bring the pod to the perimeter of the warehouse where there would be people that would be filling the orders. So a person would kind of magically look up. They'd see a shelf in front of them. A light would shine on the goods that had to be picked. They would pick the good, scan it, put it in the right order. And by the time they turned around, there would be a new shelf carrying a different item that they would put in that same box or a different order that they were filling at the same time. So this made it it much more efficient, much uh, faster to to fill orders by eliminating all of this walking that occurred. It also made it much less error prone and very easy to to implement. Uh, it didn't require you know most autonomous systems take a long long time to to properly integrate. Uh, you know we could get a system up and running in a matter of days, which which had a huge impact. And in fact, I think the fallback is very simple. If the robot doesn't retrieve the shelf, the person can still 
go to the shelf and get things off the shelf. So it's, it's a very robust system from the ground up from the very early days this way. Yeah, except that with our system, we really, for, for reasons of safety, and also, you know, we, we started this in 2003, we did not allow people to actually go in the inside of the warehouse where all the pods were being held while the system was operating. We kind of thought of it as a big machine with all of these mobile robots running around. You know, they're carrying pods up to a thousand pounds, moving quite fast. So we didn't have the luxury that if the robot didn't work, a person would go. But what we did have is the ability to distribute this, have you know hundreds of robots. And just the system was so reliable that we didn't really have to go and you know interfere with the system manually. So I think uh, if you're going to do something autonomous, there's a very high bar because you need a certain level of reliability so that you can make the economics work. Now, the first time I heard of this, this now many years ago, of course, I was like, wow, this seems so crazy that the robot is picking up the shelves and carrying the shelves around the warehouse. But ultimately, when you do the math of how it works out and the amount of walking saved, it's, it's, it's tremendous, of course. And what happened, I believe, in was around 2012, Kiba Systems was acquired by Amazon. Can you, can you tell the story? What happened there? I mean, I think it's always a difficult decision whether or not to let yourself be acquired. No, nobody makes that decision lightly, especially when you're doing well. But then Amazon has the biggest goods mover in the world, pretty much. It's, it's the biggest client you want. It's a very interesting uh, proposition, I imagine. Yeah, and it's and it's a exactly like you said. It's not a it's not a simple decision because there's many many factors that they're involved, and there's many uh, stakeholders. You know, so it's not just the founders and the employees. There's also the investors. You know, and at the time they purchased Kiva for roughly eight times revenue, which at the time was a pretty pretty big multiple. So that was the you know, from the investors' perspective. You know, they saw that as a good as a good return. From the founder's perspective, I think we were kind of ambivalent. It's like, yeah, if, if this goes through, it's great. If not, you know, we can we can keep on growing this. Uh, there's there's a lot of potential here. So so that was the situation. In hindsight, um, and I'm only speaking for myself, not for you know Mick and Pete, who may have different views. The uh, you know the other Kiva founders. I'm kind of ecstatic at the at the at the outcome. You know, we Amazon has fully embraced this technology. You said it earlier, a lot of times these acquisitions don't work out because things don't integrate properly. They were able to take what we created and 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 double down on it and refine it and make it something, you know, even better. Deploying our, you know, when we when we sold uh, Kiva, I think we maybe had, I'm guessing, maybe 10,000 mobile robots out in the field. You know, now there's over half a million. So, you know, I think it's I think it's a great outcome. I think it's one of those things where also how many anybody <laughs> It's never seen it before. It's it's amazing to just see it in action. You just see see the shells move around, new shell retrieved, and everything is of course even more optimized now. And when I visited the Amazon warehouse a couple of years ago, I mean the shells are designed in specific ways to allow for the robots to go faster because there's protective bands so things cannot fall out even when you accelerate yeah. hard, things like that. It's it's very, very interesting to see how. It's kind of been building up and up and up on that foundation that Kiva Systems had laid down. I'm curious, in the very early days of Kiva, I think for most startups, the hardest thing is getting the first customers, right? Once you have the first customers and you make them happy, things kind of go much easier from there. Do you remember those days and how it was to, to get your first customers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting the first customer was really key. There, we have to thank our, our investors, Bain, 
who introduced us to the folks at Staples and at high enough level that we could have a discussion about this kind of science fiction based technology. But, you know, we demonstrated to them, we had a demo system, you know, they came and kicked the tires, so to speak, and they saw that, you know, we were for real. And so they gave us a chance and we were, you know, we were able to make them happy. As you said, you know, keeping your clients happy is super important. This is a something that I've taken to my second startup, Verity. You know, the client comes number one. And, you know, it was a great break for us. Now, one thing we've actually talked about before, and I'm really curious to talk more about here, is that you, with your students, you won the RoboCup competition, F-180 competition, four times in six years back at Cornell. And there was actually a connection from there to Kiva, an unexpected connection, I guess. Can, can you say a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I did my PhD at Caltech doing some very theoretical work. And then when I started as a professor at Cornell University, I decided that I wanted to get into mobile robots. It's something that I felt was no one was really doing research in the area. I felt that there was a lot of potential there just as an interesting intellectual problem. So I decided to build a team uh, of, of students, uh, mechanical, electrical, computer science students, undergraduates, graduates, to compete in this yearly uh, competition called RoboCup, where teams from around the world would make robots that played soccer fully autonomously against against other teams. Um, we took a very kind of dynamics and controls approach to the problem, meaning that we felt that the way to be successful in this competition was really by having agile robots that could move fast and pass to each other quickly and less about, you know, the tactics of, you know, what is the perfect, less chess, more physicality and, and moving fast. And I think that that's the reason we dominated the competition. But I had no nothing in my mind about applications. You know, it's not that I felt that we were going to make robots that replace people playing soccer. I just thought it was a great intellectual challenging problem. And then when I was on sabbatical at MIT, I met, uh, that's where I met Mick Mounts, uh, who had the idea to do Kiva System, the founder of Kiva. And basically we hit it off. And, and after multiple meetings, I decided to quit my sabbatical at MIT and join uh, Mick and start uh, Kiva, which back then was called Distrobot, along with uh, Pete Werman. So Pete Werman, Mick Mounts, and I uh, started Kiva uh, way back uh, in 2003. Now, I think that's always very intriguing, this notion that often academic research can be not with a specific purpose in mind, but it's advancing the understanding of, in this case, mobile robots, how to build the most capable mobile robots in a competition like soccer, you get challenged, you have competition, it's exciting. You expand beyond the current frontier. And then all of a sudden there is the use case. This, did Mick know about your RoboCup efforts? Is that part of why he approached you? Exactly. That's, that's you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I didn't, I didn't actually make that explicit. The reason that I met Mick was because um, he was talking to friends uh, about, you know, his experiences at Webvan which went bankrupt. Uh, they were doing home grocery delivery. And uh, uh, he had this idea, he was at Webvan and went, it went under. And uh, he had this idea that, you know, if we had mobile robots to help fill orders, then, you know, maybe the company wouldn't have gone bankrupt. So he started scouring the web for anything related to mobile robots. And that's when he found our RoboCup videos. So we had a mutual friend contact, Mary Elaine Vandermoen, who's a professor at Cornell University, who went to school with Mick. They were both undergrads at MIT. 
And they were talking to each other, and uh, and Mick said, uh, "Well, so you know this guy?" He goes, "Yeah, he's you know Raf. He's, he's uh, sits next door to me. Uh, I'll introduce you to him. I was actually in Boston, so we met over coffee at MIT. We we're supposed to meet for thirty minutes. We met for three hours. The next day we met for three hours. The next day we met for three hours, and then I quit my sabbatical <laughs> and come wow. I hadn't heard the details before. This this is great, Ryan. It's such a good story. Now, talk about good stories. A few years ago, you gave a talk at one of the top robotics conferences, and I thought that maybe you you talk about drones or you talk about Kiva Systems perspective, historical perspective, and where you see things now. Instead, you completely surprised me, and I think maybe many people. You talked about actuated wingsuits, which I didn't even know was a thing, but there you were doing this this research. What are they, and how did you even get into doing research on them? Yeah, wingsuits are um, these kind of, and they've been improving every year dramatically. So, you know, we did this research uh, over 10 years ago. You know, but wingsuits are these kind of, you know, suits that you wear that make you look like a flying squirrel. And you can basically fly with them. Um, You can hit uh, lift to drag ratios of roughly three. So that means that, you know, you can glide quite a bit. You still have to pull a ship parachute to, um, you know, to land, but you can basically jump off mountains with these things and fly and maneuver. People fly through canyons. It's quite an amazing thing to see. I had known about them, but I, you know, I wasn't, you know, it's not like I woke up one morning and said, I want to do research in wingsuit flying. The reason I got involved with it was that I had the student that was working in finance in London. He wasn't a student. He was basically had graduated. He was, he was in his thirties. And he wrote to me and um, he said that he wanted to do a PhD in robotics. And, you know, he had a great pedigree from his undergraduate, uh, great experience, but he'd been working in finance for five years. And, uh, you know, I gave him a chance. He came to visit. I felt that he was, you know, very astute and very mature. And so I said, sure, once you come and join the group, uh, we have a lot of cool things that we're working on. I'm sure that there'll be, uh, uh, it's not typical for me to do that, but I kind of really felt that this person was very, very unique. But then I asked him, I said, you know, there's all these cool projects we're working on. You know, we're working on drones. And I said, but if you could do anything that you wanted to, what would you do? And he kind of, you know, big spark in his eye and, and he said, uh, well, I know exactly what I would do is I'm a wingsuit flyer and I would want to make wingsuits, you know, so that instead of falling, you could actually fly level and even, and even gain altitude. So I've said, tell me more about her. I got more interested in it. And uh, he had a very well-developed plan. So I said, sure, let's do this. So basically, you know, uh, we worked together and we figured out how to do it. He flew with jets on his feet took some data to be to see how much uh, thrust would be produced we did uh, some really interesting models and there's a, there's a sad side to the story uh, Jeffrey Robson uh, geo was the was the student that was doing this he actually died during a wingsuit flight in South Africa when he was on holidays so that was you know I stopped that research then it was geo was the guy to do it we did some wonderful research published some wonderful results but you know, it's a, it's a dangerous sport. Yeah, it sounds like a very dangerous sport. Also, looks very dangerous. Yeah, people that do these things—they're very special people. Like, they're, there's just something. If you talk to these folks, it's like Gio was the calmest guy in the world. Like, he would never get upset. He was always very calm. But look at the things that he did, right? Like, he jumped jumped off mountains. I think these are just very special types of individuals that can actually do this. I could never do that. I wouldn't. You want to think about trying. But what I really like is the question you asked him. He said, if you could do anything, choose anything, what would you pick? And how 
open up this whole new direction to to give people essentially the, the freedom, the confidence to you know propose something of their own, and it can be much more creative very often than when you're just to hand a project to a student and said, this is what we're doing now. And it's interesting because in the very first episode of this season, I asked at some point, Yosha Benjo, what do you think is the, the secret to success? And he says, key is giving the students freedom. Give the students freedom. Sure, sometimes, you know, it takes a while and, you know, they wander around, but ultimately, the most magical things start happening that otherwise could, could freedom and confidence is how he phrased it. I agree hundred percent. And I think you have to be careful of how that confidence is developed. You know, with Gio, he was 30. He was already, uh, you know, a mature person. He had worked in something that he realized was not something he wanted to do. A lot of folks make those decisions early in life and then they get kind of handcuffed by, I work in finance, I make lots of money and that's it. He was, you know, he had this maturity to step away from it. So, you know, you could, I wouldn't ask that to all of my first year PhD students because a lot of them, you know, they're just kind of out of an undergrad and they don't know themselves. And then you kind of want to just give them a little bit of time to explore and, and develop their own ideas. Right. Yeah. The way I think of it is essentially there is two parts of the PhD. There is learning how to solve problems and for that, somebody can give you the problem, but then the next level in PhD is choosing your own problems. And you don't need to start doing that right away. Once you can do that well, you're ready to graduate. Yeah, now, exactly. Now, there's another project that really caught my attention, Raph. You're doing so many interesting things. Blind juggling machines. Can you say a bit more? Yes. Um, so, you know, for most of my research uh, and adult life, professional life, I've always been doing things involving feedback, feedback control, right? Sensing, compute, actuation. And when I moved to ETH, I kind of asked myself a different question. What kind of amazing things can you do without any sort of feedback? What kind of interesting control can you do without feedback? And uh, one of the things that, you know, that I started thinking about is, can you make a machine that juggles but without any feedback, without knowing where the balls are. And so we kind of dove into the dynamics of that and we turned out that you can. So we developed kind of a suite of different types of juggling machines that could, uh, and they were called blind jugglers because they couldn't see and they couldn't hear either, like no sensing. And uh, just really exploring the, being able to create stable dynamics without feedback, just by having, you know, just the right type of, of motion. Should I imagine that these are then massive gloves that you design that naturally catch things? No, no, no. So you can you can do it in that way. The way we did it was really just with contact. So we had these plates that would move in a. They looks like they were just moving to hit things, but they were actually moving in a very precise trajectory, and they would just hit the ball back and forth to each other, or the plate would hit it to itself. We had a clover leaf that had four plates aimed in different directions, and then you could. It would bounce the balls back and forth. And just the motion of these plates was such that it would lead to the stable, stable motion. It's interesting. And how about when you get it started? Do you need to get it started in a very specific way or would just self-stabilize? Yeah. So some motions you could start, uh, you could quasi-statically move it to to that equilibrium. Other ones, the only way that you could get it started was starting near the equilibrium. So we got very good at kind of going with the juggler and then throwing the balls <laughs> so that it would get it close to the basin of attraction. 
uh, of the equilibrium. So yeah, that was also fun too. I'll say yeah. I, I love the way you you tend to think out of the box with with the way you go about your research. It's always surprising and and refreshing. And one of the most recent things I heard about is that now you're actually doing some work that ties back to Maxwell Maxwell's demon. So maybe can you explain what is Maxwell's demon and what what are you doing yourself now? Yeah, so Maxwell's demons, this great thought experiment thought by James Clerk Maxwell. If you kind of think of the physics, you know, the trinity of physics, you know, it's it's Einstein, uh, it's Newton, and it's Maxwell. So uh, Maxwell, you know, uh, Maxwell's equations, that's what he's known for. But he's actually the father of control theory. Most people don't know that. And he was one of the um, early scientists looking at uh, things related to thermodynamics. And he created this wonderful thought experiment, which was called Maxwell's Demon. And the idea was that you'd have two rooms with air molecules, and you have this little demon separating these two rooms that would open and close a very small door. And they would open the door to let fast air molecules move from one room to the other, and let uh, slow air molecules move from this room to the other room. And otherwise, they'd keep the door closed. And the effect of that would be that one room would get hotter, and the other room would get colder. And this demon could do this without expending any energy because this door was either very small or arbitrarily light, or it would, you know, you source energy to accelerate it up, but then when you decelerate it, you could absorb all that energy back. So you could do this without expending any energy. And Maxwell said, well, why, why can't this device not be built? Because obviously there's nothing in the world that violates, that can make heat flow from, from cold to hot. So that is Maxwell's demon, and it's something that I've been interested in for a long, long time, you know, 20 years. And about eight years ago, I really started to dive into it because I wanted to really understand why we cannot build such a demon. So I kind of figured this out on my own. I looked at the literature, and, and I came to some surprising results. Tell me more. What did you find? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so it turns out that you can create... So first of all, why is Maxwell's demon... Why is it that we can't build it? The first thing is, if you look at the laws of physics as we know them, they satisfy two things that we know. One of them is conservation of energy, and the other one is time reversibility. So basically, time reversibility just means that, colloquially speaking, if you play a movie backwards you're not breaking any laws of physics. Another way to say it is that if you take the state of a of a system and you flip the sign of all the velocities, you can you're basically move backwards in time. And this is the simple dynamics reason without getting into any information theory of why you can't build Maxwell's demon. Is because Maxwell's demon is not time reversible. Maxwell's demon opens the door to let fast air molecules move from this room to this room. But if you play that backwards in time, you have a fast air molecule moving from here to here, but for that, the door is closed. So Maxwell's demon is cheating because it already knows the direction of time. So that's why in some ways, Maxwell's demon is, is actually not that interesting. Without even getting into information theory and how does it sense the air molecule, it's just not time reversible. So what is interesting is that you can make a time reversible demon. This was actually done in the 90s. Uh, and I... I guess I created, I, I think, the world's simplest reversible demon. Um, I can't really explain it in words. If you're interested, you just just search Hamiltonian demon and, and, you'll, and you'll see, you know, I wrote this very long paper about it. But it breaks another law, which is that 
systems as we know them in classical mechanics that can be written as a Hamiltonian. Basically, all systems can be written in Hamiltonian form. There's another famous theorem called Liouville's theorem, which basically kind of tells you why Maxwell's demon can't be built. And it turns out you can get around this law. Uh, and this was very surprising by quantizing energy. And this is what I showed in this recent paper that I wrote, is that by looking at purely deterministic dynamical systems where energies are quantized and all energy, all interactions preserve this quantization, you can actually break the second law of thermodynamics. Interesting. So is your conclusion from this that energy cannot be quantized? Because Or is your conclusion from this we can break the law of thermodynamics? So this is a purely mathematical result. Uh, it's not, you know, something that I could build, but it was very interesting to me to actually build a Hamiltonian system that if you looked at this invariant set of quantized energies, which is a set of measure zero, which is why you can circumvent the second law, you can actually, you know, make heat flow from cold to hot and you can actually make a perpetual motion machine. That was, that took me two years to do. That was amazing to me. But, you know, here's something conserves energy. I can write a Hamiltonian for it. And if I just initialize the system to have quantized energies, then all of a sudden I can get this really interesting behavior. I think that there's some interesting connections here to cosmology and uh, why, you know, it. the second law would basically tell us that why does this, why does any of this exist? Why did the universe start in a low entropy state? So I think that there's something more to the second law. And I think this is just a glimpse of it. It's really fascinating. I think there's very few fields to me as fascinating as thermodynamics and the laws of thermodynamics because they, this, this notion that certain things are possible versus not possible. In this case, entropy should increase on average is the second law, right? It should not go down. But then other things like Cournot's cycles, like what is the most efficient way to build an engine and you can never exceed this efficiency and I haven't seen really such counterparts too much in, in other fields where there's just this beautiful like analysis of in the f limits of physics as we know it was the most efficient thing you could possibly do. And it's it's just laid out right there. Thermodynamics is amazing. It is it's a shame that it is not it's either not taught properly or students just don't have enough mathematical maturity to understand it. I don't know what it is, but it's just it's a beautiful subject. And for some reason, most people, when they think of thermodynamics, they just think manipulating partial differential equations. Like that's what most students think about thermodynamics, whereas it's it's just this beautiful field. And it's a tragic field. If you look at the history of it, you know, the some of the characters involved, you know, some of them committed suicide because, you know, their ideas were not being accepted. It drives people mad. Yeah. A fascinating field to me for sure. Now, talk about fascinating. When your work becomes interesting to a wide audience, uh, in some sense, the ultimate, ultimate way to present it is at the Worldwide TED Forum. And Raf, you, you've been invited to that. You've done that. You showcased your amazing drones live, not just to talk, but with a live demo, everything at TED. I, I watched it. It's, it's amazing. What I'm curious about is a bit the other side. How, how was that for you? Like, how was the experience, the people you meet there, maybe the feedback you get, but also things like when I've given some of the higher profile talks, sometimes they run me through like 10 rehearsals before I'm allowed to go. And I'm just like, okay, that's just painful. I'm curious about the whole dynamic. 
the good and the bad. Yeah, I mean, boy, uh, overall, it was an amazing experience. Uh, you know, the folks there, Chris Anderson, just really wonderful folks. They gave us the chance. They, Chris went out on a limb and, you know, he, he looked at me in the eye when we were talking about this and said, can you do this like without crashing? And I go, yeah, yeah, we can. We've done it. We've done live demos before and and I think we can do this. So he kind of stuck out his neck and uh, with the folks in Vancouver and said, you know, the venue, the the folks that were uh, running the venue said, like, you're not going to fly drones over people. And he goes, no, 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 we got it handled. My insurance will cover it. So the folks there were amazing. They're perfectionists. So there is a lot of training. Fortunately, in my case, because we were doing demonstrations and they realized that we couldn't just do demo after demo after demo. I only had to do my talk, I think, once. And digging some feedback on that, and that was very well received. Just kind of related to that, there was this this poor poor lady that clearly she over rehearsed, and when she went on stage, she froze after about thirty seconds. She completely forgot everything that she was going to talk about, and she started to cry. <laughs> uh, and then everybody started to clap, you know, to encourage her. And then she started again, and and uh, and then she was able to finish her talk. So I think it can be stressful if you over prepare for it, but. You know, uh, I think uh, you do have to, they don't give you much time. You have, you know, 16 minutes to give your talk. Doing a live demo is inherently stressful. Um, when you're flying things over, you know, these 3,000 people in the eyes, and some of them are, you know, there's Al Gore that I'm flying over, and, you know, there's Larry Page over there, and, you know, it can be a little bit stressful, but you've probably heard of the demo effect, you know, that demos never work when you bring people. I, I don't believe in the demo effect. I think it's just not being prepared. And one of the things that I really strive to do in my research group is to make things that always work. That is an important part of the research problem to me is making things that are work all the time. And that's algorithmic in nature too. create algorithms that are robust, create systems that are robust. So, you know, we were ready for it. That's not to say that we didn't have mishaps that don't appear in the final video that everybody sees. When I went on stage and the drones were supposed to fly, nothing happened for about 30 seconds. So I'm sitting there on stage all alone, 3,000 people, not saying anything because I'm waiting for the drones to fly and, and they were not flying. And it turns out that somebody backstage unplugged <laughs> everything. So basically the system had no power and my students you know, were scrambling to find out what was wrong. And I had full confidence that they'd figure it out. So I'm sitting there smiling and eventually... The system started. So that's kind of mishap number one. Mishap number two, the final demo was a swarm of these little drones that flew over the audience, did a beautiful light show, and then landed. And the first one took off from my hand. Unfortunately, that drone went unstable and actually flew into the audience. <laughs> and that was cut out of the video. <laughs> uh, but I remember that happening and I'm thinking, oh my God. The first drone that flies off flies out into the audience. What if all 30 of them fly out into the audience? This is going to be a disaster. Of course, that didn't happen. Now, these drones are relatively small, right? It's not like a 10-pound drone or anything like that. Yeah, they weigh 40 grams. Yeah, I remember the first, you know, when the first one flew off, it kind of somebody kind of grabbed it. And I just remember saying, hey, you get to keep that one. And you know, so everybody had a big chuckle. Um, and then it's like a home run at a baseball game. Yeah. Whoever catches the ball takes it home. That's right. <laughs> Exactly. Now, one of the unique things about you, Ralph, I mean, there's so many unique things about you, but I think even especially unique is the way you're able to combine things. Like you're one of the world leading researchers, one of the world leading entrepreneurs, and you're one of the world leading technology inspired 
artists, right? How do you make that all work together? Are you running, th- are you living three lives? Is there a way to make this work together and actually get more than you can get from each individually? Yeah, you know, I don't know because all of those things to me are, they're not that different. Like I don't, I don't think of myself as anything. Like I don't think of myself as a professor. I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur or as an artist. And I just don't like labels. I like creating things. I love rational thought, you know, creating things, technological things, but also companies. Uh, Doing a startup is an act of creation. And I really like that, you know, uh, taking something from nothing and and making it into something, something big. I love working in teams. I've always loved playing team sports. So companies and, and research groups, you know, it's it's a team environment. I don't do these things by myself. I do it with a group of people. You can't do these things by yourself. The only thing that I've done by myself recently is Maxwell's Demon because I wouldn't be crazy to get a PhD student to work on that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's all the same to me. It's it's the act of creation and my tools for creation are is technology. Now, this definitely resonates, but not easy to pull off, I think. I think it's amazing how you're doing it all. This makes me very curious. How did you grow up and how did somehow your growing up lead into what you're doing now? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have two young kids, so I have to be careful that my experiences, I don't read into them too much because I had a very unusual uh, childhood in the sense that, you know, my father died when I was very young. So I moved to Canada when I was 10 years old from Italy with my mother and my brother. And, you know, I basically grew up with extremely little parental supervision. So I was kind of left to do what I wanted to do. In fact, I moved out on my own when I was 16 years old. I was working in a restaurant, um, uh, running the kitchen, supporting myself uh, at the same time that I was going to school. But for me, that really worked because I had total freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I think that that has greatly shaped me. I think that that could have easily have gone south. I think, you know, throwing a young kid to do their own thing. For me, it worked out. You know, what what doesn't kill kill you makes you stronger. But I wouldn't recommend that as a parenting stuff. Yeah, I read some of the stories on, on your website, Raph, about how you learned about physics and uh, <laughs> jumping into a pool, holding yeah. bricks. <laughs> yeah, I just had no supervision. So I can just basically, and I kind of also developed my own sense of um, kind of robustness and knowing kind of what those boundaries are. Like I've done a lot of crazy stuff, but I've never had a broken bone in my life before. I'm, uh, you know, I'm 55 years old. I'm very healthy. I've, I haven't had any kind of physical accident. So um, I'm. It looks like I did crazy stuff as a kid, but it was all very sort of thought out extremely well. Even jumping into a pool with bricks or you know off the rooftop with an umbrella, it wasn't a high roof. It was only ten feet. So you know how hurt could you get? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you better practice for less height. Uh, to how you're going to land and so forth. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, there was grass. Now you're achieving so much, um, but I'm also curious. Um, aside from everything you're achieving, what are some things you do to get yourself away from? your work, though your work seems quite aligned with with just your your own entertainment, but how do you get away from the things that you're known for and truly relax? Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, I would say the the number one thing is is, uh, being in in the wilderness. I love hiking. I love, um, you know, uh, just going on these super long treks, um, get up before the sun comes up and just 
basically walk, hike up a mountain, you know, do a 2000 meters elevation and then come down and then I'm good for a week. Uh, it just, it's kind of how I meditate. It's how I keep in shape. Um, you know, you can climb the same mountain 10 times and it'll be different every time because when the weather changes, you do it in the winter, then I do it with snowshoes. I do it in the summer when it's very hot. It's a very different experience. But that is, I would say that is how I relax is by doing heavy physical exercise uh, in the mountains. Wow. Just, just, do you say 2000 meters up and down? I mean, that's not just a little morning thing. That must take a good chunk of the day, no? Yeah, it takes about four hours um, uh, to to do something like that and four hours to go up and roughly four hours to come down unless it's in the winter. Then in the winter, you can go down much faster because you can basically run down the mountain with snowshoes. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, these are like, you know, seven, eight hour days. Wow. Well, Rav, thanks so much for making the time. Uh, really enjoy this conversation. Uh, so, so have I. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs>